The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the Oh Shit edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, which you know what that news is. After a long and gruesome election campaign during which we did an unbelievably good job of never mentioning this guy's name. Maybe too good a job. Because you didn't want us to. And we, you know, it felt good to have a little Trump-free zone. I don't regret money. it. I don't regret no, it. No, it was a, I think we gave everyone a much desired break in their week. So, yeah. So, we are now, you know, unavoidably, I'm afraid, going to have to talk about <clears throat> the, the the phrase which I still find quite hard to get out of my mouth. President Donald Trump. Voldemort has arrived. Um, anyway, yes, I am Felix Hammond of Fusion. I have here Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Hi. And a Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello, everyone. And we are going to talk about some policy stuff because, you know, I think the election is over. But we are we are also going to talk about the polls and how they were so wrong. And we are going to talk, I think, about markets. Jordan. Yeah. What, what happened? Like so okay, so this is this is where I start on this one, is that Justin Wolfers was probably the most famous person to do this. He did a whole bunch of regressions according to like how Trump was doing in the polls compared to the value of the Mexican peso and the stock market futures and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, if Trump wins, we're gonna see the stock market crashed by 10%. Um, I know that Bridgewater thought that was like low and we could see the stock market crash by like 15 or 20%. And as the results started coming in on Tuesday night, the stock market futures were plunging down like 4 Hundreds or 5%. of points. Yeah. I just want to break in, before we actually talk about what actually happened, mm -hmm. I just want to break in and say like that... Like that narrative of like, uh oh, we better like, like we better elect Clinton or the markets are going to crash was so off, off story, like off base. Like well, as I, if I, I don't know if that was the narrative. The narrative was just like, if you elect Trump, then yeah, like the the, the Trump was not a market friendly candidate. I don't right. think it was a, like this is why you should elect Clinton. Oh, that's how I read it. And but and, and it just seemed to me like the people who were voting for Trump would be like, good, like good. I want to see the markets crash. Like right. Well, well, they didn't. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, okay. So, so there was definitely this narrative um, going into the, the elect going into election day that you know Trump was bad for markets, Clinton was good for markets. When Trump's chances of winning uh, went up, markets went down. When Trump's chances of winning went down, the markets went up. So it seemed pretty clear. Um, and then, like you said, Felix, on the actual election day, when it when it seemed like Trump might actually pull this out, you saw the Dow Jones Dow Jones futures just fall through the floor. I mean, it, it felt like what happened sort of the night of Brexit, right? Um, and Asian markets were down like everything was down yeah. at first, but then the Mexican peso so, crashed through twenty for the first time yeah, ever. Yeah, hit an all time low. Um, it, it was it, it looked really bad, and then all of a sudden they started recovering. And I, I feel good because on, on that night, I, I actually, I did tweet for a timestamp. I felt like markets were way overreacting. Um, and, and then in the coming days, they fully recovered. And then actually the S&P 500, I haven't, I haven't checked just now, but was up, I believe, at the end of yesterday. Markets have actually risen since Trump. Uh, so the indexes have risen. Well, the so stock we, markets have so, risen. Yeah, Let me so add. we need to, so yeah. let's, because it's, it's definitely worth unpacking this a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
there are different types of stock market and you know what we are seeing is the down and we have talked on this show before about how ridiculously anachronistic and stupid the Dow is and that no one should look at the Dow as an indicator of anything. But the Dow right now is actually an interesting indicator because it's not precisely because it's not the broader stock market. It is a bunch of like older um, and kind of, you know, behind the curve companies. The Dow is doing really well. The NASDAQ, which is like the more sort of tech-heavy index, is doing really quite badly. Not super badly, but it's down. The S&P 500, which is the market as a whole, is up, but not nearly as much as the Dow. And the bond market, which is the one which really matters, is down. down. Yeah. What do you mean by really matters? To who? I was going to say, I think it, well, it, it signals different things, right? So here's, here's, here's my theory of, of the case. And I think, I think it's pretty much the mainstream theory, which is that if you are actually paying attention to what Trump was saying during this election, what little, what few policy pronouncements he, he offered, um, and not just his general erratic behavior, um, it was pretty clear he had a sweeping corporate friendly uh, agenda. Um, he wants to massively deregulate banking by rolling back Dodd-Frank. He wants to massively deregulate uh, the fossil fuels industry by rolling back the clean power plan, amongst other things. And he wants to give massive qu- corporate tax cuts, which are directly valuable to shareholders. And he wants to repeal Obamacare, yeah. which was trying to bend the cost that's curve correct. on healthcare. So like now, as healthcare costs yeah. go up, that's going to be really good for the healthcare industry. All of these sectors did really well in the stock market. Yeah. And so if, if you're an investor, you, you stop and you get over the initial shock of what happened and, and the initial sense of fugue, right? <laughs> like, And then you realize, oh, wait, I might actually make, these companies are going to make more money. They are going to pay bigger dividends. They are, I'm going to probably ha- be able to pay less on my capital gains. Right now, stock values, especially in these particular industries that are going to be kind of unleashed, our stocks are looking really good. And so there, there's reason for, for some people to be celebrating. And, you know, you see specific, uh, you were talking about how, you know, different indexes have performed differently. You also definitely see that on um, in specific industries. Uh, so my like friend, private prisons. Yeah, exactly. My friend Mike Conskoll at uh, the Roosevelt Institute went and did a little a few tabulations and uh, yesterday he noticed that the the biggest banks, like I think the eight biggest banks, had added fifty three billion dollars in market cap alone. I was I was just um, having dinner last night. This I mean this is going to sound horribly name droppy, but with a guy who was on the boards of both Morgan Stanley and Merck, yeah. and he's like well, one went up twenty percent and the other one went up twenty five percent. It's like what the hell just happened? He was this you know huge Clinton supporter, but so what did, what what was his explanation well i mean exactly that but i want jordan to answer your question kathy which which is the bonds because they the the bonds are the thing which really matters famously um jim carville i think it was says that like if he ever gets reincarnated he wanted to come back as the bond market because it's the most powerful (laughs) thing in the world (laughs) so right okay so the bond market uh yields are rising uh, which means bond prices are falling. And that signals people, essentially, uh, people now are expecting inflation, finally. And you're seeing it like tips, you know, inflation break-evens kind of rise. They're, they're so like, very to, be, to, to, to translate into English, there are these things called treasury index protected <laughs> securities, yeah. normally known as tips, which pay the rate of inflation, um, whatever that is, as, as, as their coupon, um, plus or minus a little bit. And what you can do is you can compare the yield on these 
tips to the yield on treasury bonds and get what's known as break even, which is basically the expected inflation rate. And that inspect, expected inflation rate has been going up. And there's been a bunch of talk in the market because the market reporters generally think of bonds as an asset class. They're like, this is a place where you put your money and you get a return. And if the price of bonds go down, everyone who's invested in bonds starts shedding tears and goes, oh, this is very bad. But I think the broader picture is, you know, that we have been massively undershooting our inflation targets for living memory, or at least since the crisis. And that if there is genuine hope and expectation that inflation is going to start going back up to the kind of 2% that the Fed ostensibly wants, um, that is probably good for the country, no? Yeah, I mean, you know, to be really simple about it, they, uh, investors, a lot of people are expecting a big fiscal stimulus from Donald Trump. This is something, right, we've been talking about for years. Everyone's been wanting governments to spend money to revive their economies and, and uh, you know, inflate GDP growth. Um, and now there and there's been, you know, Trump has campaigned on this idea. He's going to do a giant infrastructure bill of some kind, which we will get to. Um, and beyond that, the Republicans in the House are talking about these massive, massive tax cuts, which at the very least are going to uh, lead to, well, A, it's going to put money in the pockets of generally rich people, but it's also going to lead to more government borrowing, which leads to, generally speaking, more inflation as well. So explain so we, this to me. Well, I'm going to just dumb yeah. it down even further because yeah. we that got pretty dumb. I, <laughs> I appreciate Thank, that. Thanks, Kathy. Um, <laughs> but like, I think the very dumb version is like the market looks like it's expecting inflation and the and the expectations we think are coming from this idea that um, that that Trump will end up successfully putting money in the pockets of normal people by giving them jobs to do. I don't, no, no, I don't no, 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 that, no, that's that. not it at all. So what if is you, it? He just, if you expect inflation, that's the way that that generally manifests itself in the markets is that bonds go down and stocks go up because, um, you know, bonds. But why are we expecting inflation? Okay. okay well, so let's, we'll, we'll get, we'll get to that. I think that for now, I think just to answer that question, people are expecting Trump to spend like a motherfucker. That's like the Trump and the Republicans are going to have no heeds for deficit. Doesn't that mean the money goes somewhere? It's going to go somewhere. Where? Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> but, okay, so what... So, I mean, the reason I ask is because yeah. we've been having quantitative easing for God knows right, okay, how long. And, so and that is, money has gone somewhere, but it hasn't gone into the pocket of average people. Right. Yeah. No, we're not... Yeah, this has nothing to do with average people. This is just a question of um, whether fiscal policy has greater ability to cause inflation than monetary policy does. And somehow the um, the market seemed to believe that it does. I think if you look at Japan, you might think to yourself, well, what's the evidence for that? Yeah. But, but generally the idea is that if you're borrowing a bunch of money and you're spending a bunch of money and you're pouring a bunch of real money, not like fake monetary money, not like QE money, but QE actual money. real money into things like bridges and walls and pharmacies, then... Yeah, you know, the prices of those things are going to go up, and when prices of things go up, that's inflation. And you know, my theory is that you can't actually have prices go up unless people are are competing to buy those things. Yeah, I mean, I think there and those that requires people having money. There, in their look, there is some, yeah, there there is some expectation that this is to again keep it simple that these spending plans are going to put money in the pockets of normal people to. I think there's some questions about exactly what's going to really come of them. But yes, to answer your question, I think that is part of it. But, but you know, normal people aren't the people buying airports. Normal people aren't, you know. So when if the prices of an airport go up, like that is actually going to show up in inflation somewhere, but it's not that it's because the paychecks are larger. 
We'll see what happens to paychecks. They might go up. And in a way, and obviously, I think we all hope that they do. And higher wages and higher inflation is much better than stagnant wages and higher inflation. Yes. Um, but honestly, I feel like this kind of, I, I, I hesitate to call it optimism, but expectation that Trump is going to be able to create inflation where like no governments around the world have been able to create inflation for the past decade is uh, maybe a little bit unrealistic. I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things here, though, is, you know, the Fed used to talk about needing to be or people used to talk about the need for the Fed to be um, sort of credibly irresponsible, believably irresponsible. You know, they would have to believe that the Fed really would just, you know, kind of put the pedal down on monetary policy until they saw inflation. And I think, you know, people do believe Trump really will be irresponsible about things like deficit spending. There's no question in their minds that Trump will have no heed for balancing budget and stuff like that. So let's 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 move on coffee actually, break. and have a coffee break, and then we'll talk about um, actual policy. Actual the, these these infrastructure investments. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So, so, so let's talk a little bit, Jordan, about this fiscal stimulus in in like policy wonk detail because yeah, sure. because this is weirdly of all of the great promises that Donald Trump made in his campaign from banning muslims to building a wall to making america great again the the first thing that people really expect is bizarrely exactly the same thing which was the first thing that Barack Obama did when he got into office which is a massive fiscal stimulus bill yeah it's it's a i don't know how many people have actually read Trump's plans I really don't. I wrote a thing about this um, right before the election, and a few other people uh, covered it. Um, but he actually, his advisors, um, Wilbur Ross, who, you know, he's a famous private equity guy, and uh, Peter Navarro, he's an economist out in uh, the University of California, Irvine, he's mostly known for trade issues these days, um, put out an explanation of, of what his infrastructure plan was going to be. And it was not New Deal style or even Barack Obama style, you know, just straight government spending on roads and bridges and schoolhouses and whatever not. It was actually basically a series of tax incentives. It's really a little less than $200 billion in tax credits, which are meant to incentivize private infrastructure development or maybe public-private partnerships. So think like... So you wrote a piece, for example, that yeah. said like, instead of raising taxes to build roads we're going to incentivize private p companies to build roads and then charge people to ride to drive on them yeah exactly it's basically a pri i mean but either I way it, it's it's a privatization uh it, it's private roads private bridges private toll roads things like that um and it, it, it's not what a lot of people probably have in mind right now it's meant to again get kind of states to work with a bunch of Wall Street investors to fund their maybe their new water plant. Who the but, hell knows? But, but wait, hang on a sec. But yeah. like putting the mechanism to one yeah. side, what we are talking about is trillions of dollars in spending on infrastructure, on airports, on roads, on sewage systems, and 
you can quibble with the mechanism, but it's a fiscal stimulus, which is going to create an improved infrastructure for the U.S., no? I I think so. I so mean, I've, I've talked to some economists, I've talked to some liberal economists, because typically they're the ones who are interested in things like fiscal multipliers and stuff like that. And, and they seem fairly confident that, yeah, this will have some sort of stimulative effect. I think there are open questions about it, because when you're basically incentivizing private investors to come on and build this stuff by giving them tax breaks... I do wonder how much of that is just shifting investment around rather than creating new demand. And the thing that is supposed to act as fiscal stimulus is you're creating new demand in the economy. And I'm wondering how much of this is actually just going to end up um, convincing a guy who might have otherwise put his money into a um, one project to put it into another. Right. So, so okay. But even then, I think it's good. Like, Let's say that what we get in the Trump administration, and going back to the previous discussion, we've kind of seen this in the markets already, is capital moving away from Silicon Valley unicorns and into airports. I think that is a good thing. Well, okay. So the mechanism actually does matter. I'm going to like go back to that because as Jordan said in his wonderful piece before the election, you know, if you're, if you're saying it's all privatized, then you really are incentivizing um, this, these private companies to look at which roads will give them the biggest profit in the end. And the answer might very well be roads that rich people use, not roads that poor people use. So theoretically, we could see this becoming, you know, the the roads in poor neighborhoods becoming shittier and shittier, and the roads in rich neighborhoods getting fancier and fancier. Well, right, which is Pareto better than what we have right now, which is the roads in all neighborhoods getting shittier and shittier. Well, to some, yeah, I mean, yes, I think that that is true to some extent. I think that's a short term view. Yeah. I, I mean, would say. so here, here, here. I think we're all living. We're still living in, in cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Like, let, let's be fair to ourselves. Let's yeah. be kind to ourselves. The infrastructure. When I hear infrastructure, I want. I think Flint, Michigan, lead pipes. That is not going to happen with Trump. Not with this. He's promising to. I don't think that's it, expensive, I, yeah. and it's for poor people. He was in Flint, and he said that he would do it. Yeah, but. I don't. I don't imagine it'll happen. But oh well, the incentives just weren't there. I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's like. He sets up the system and it, it, it does what it does. Yeah, I, I think that, yes, I think that's 100%. I want to say I agree with you, Felix, that this is, it could be worse, right? This is, this is, it's, this is definitely not a first best approach, but it could be worse. And, and fact, I agree with you that the Flint problem is part of it. However, but, but wait, let me yeah. just be clear. It yeah. could be worse as in, for instance, the infrastructure projects that we had during the second term of the Obama administration, like which were basically zero. This is better than nothing. This is better than zero. This is better than what we are yep. used to for the past few years. I think probably. That said, there are also, I think, long-term economic reasons to be kind of concerned about this structure. Basically, what he's trying to incentivize these private investors to do is put down some of their own money up front, right? And then go on to the private debt markets and borrow a lot. Right. And to fund these projects with with the with the help of these these tax credits. And the bottom line is private investors are going to have to borrow for more than the government itself would have to borrow for. And therefore, these these infrastructure projects are going to be more expensive than if the government itself just directly funded them. And so you're going to end up with a bunch of expensive infrastructure. And, it, you know, the economic bang for your buck you get from these projects, if, if you read the people who analyze this, the IMF, the World Bank, whoever, it, a lot of it also depends on how much you pay for what you get. And so part of me is worried that long-term, we're, yeah, we're basically paying for some white elephants. And I, I kind of 
uh, you know, theoretically, yes, actually, no. I mean, yes, it's true that the cost of capital is going to be higher if it's done by the private sector. And the cost of capital is an important input into the total cost of a project. But there are lots of other important inputs. And the idea that, say, the Boston Big Dig, which was done with public funds, was like, you know, cheap because it had a lower cost of capital is ridiculous. Yeah, like, but that's like the worst of all possible <laughs> examples. Like, I mean, come on. like well, Seattle. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole yeah. bunch of examples of government construction projects going completely crazy. And while I'm not saying that the public sector is always less efficient than the private sector, I'm also saying that a an across-the-board assumption that this thing is just going to be too expensive and that the difference is going to make its way into the pockets of bond investors. I think, yeah, probably, maybe, but I'm still coming back to this idea that it's better than the alternative. Can we take a couple steps back? And I I think I'm going to end up agreeing with Felix, although the question, two questions. First of all, what can get past Congress that that Trump wants to do? And second of all, like, do we really want Trump to succeed, <laughs> right? Do Or do we want to say everything that happens from the next four years, if it's a miserable failure, it's actually good for, it's good for the country. I don't know. I mean, I'm a little bit anarchistic this morning, so forgive me. But let's start with what can he actually get past the Republican-led Congress? It, it is not clear. It I mean, is. tax cuts, I think, is pretty clear. Yeah. Oh, ta- Obamacare, ta- ta- getting rid of yes. Obamacare is pretty clear. Yes. So the, the, the infrastructure is... Still an open question. It, it there's no I have not seen a sign from Paul Ryan that he really wants even this private infrastructure bill. Right. Like I have, you know, maybe it'll come up because this has been such a big thing for Trump. Maybe they'll give it to him because the cost is, you know, only 186 billion. I think to the American taxpayer is a one-time shot, which in the grand scheme of Republican spending plans, via tax cuts and things, is actually pretty low. Um, maybe they'll just throw it to him as a bone, but and to avoid, you know, an epic conflict. But I, I don't I don't think anyone can say for sure. And I, I do think actually that's one reason why the market reaction is maybe a little bit premature, in my opinion. They're trying to price all this stuff in that I just don't think you can. If we've learned nothing from this week, you know, yeah, predictions don't always, you know, <laughs> just don't always come true. And, and yeah. And one thing which no one knows is the degree to which. Donald Trump is going to be able to control a Republican led Congress and he, you know, Everything that we've seen since the election has pointed to the fact that he is the undisputed leader of the Republican Party right now, um, which is kind of terrifying. But the his ability to basically tell Congress what to do rather than simply be this um, automaton who signs whatever bills the Republican Congress sends to him is yet to be determined. Yeah, can, can, and might, maybe they'll just spend four years fighting with each other. I don't know. About I doubt that. that. So I this actually. I do think that this kind of segues into a, a broader point about what we can expect from the Trump administration and and how I do think he will work with the Republican Congress. Um, again, this infra- and it also applies to this infrastructure bill, which is basically about private spending. It's the privatization of roads and bridges and things like that. A lot of the Republican agenda, and I think Trump's agenda, is going to be about the privatization of American life. Um, Maybe not Medicare. Uh, Paul Ryan's actually making gestures towards that about voucherization, maybe doing Medicare reform. I don't know if Trump will allow that because he said he would not touch Medicare during the campaign. Maybe he'll go back on that. Um, But, you know, I think there's going to be this is going to be a heyday for, again, private prisons, private for-profit colleges, private roads. You're going to see cuts to healthcare for the poor, I think, that are going to be, again, back to more of the privatization of, of the, the healthcare system, away from more even, you know, 
it's in particular none of these things sound particularly good for the trump voters in the rust belt yeah exactly i mean it's you're you're going to see america inked you know you know that's that's kind of the the inked you know america inc that's kind of the oh, the, the republican vision for the country um private market solutions quote unquote for everything and i don't think trump is philosophically opposed to much of that. So I, I think that they're going to get along better than a lot of the people who are predicting fireworks between Trump and Paul Ryan um, current are, are suggesting. Okay. I think that's enough policy wonkery. Um, this episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Kathy. Yes, sweetie. Let, let's put the let's put this whole policy one creates aside and start getting into the data crunching because this mean, is your thing. Yeah, I mean, and data is everywhere. So data's in the market and you know, we could go we could even like I was thinking when we were talking about the baked in assumption of of inflation and you know, you can besides ba- sort of in, inferring the expected inflation, you could also infer the expected um, a probability that all this stuff will go through the infrastructure spending. And it seems to me like I have no fucking clue what's actually going to happen with Trump. And nobody does. And, 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 and he, this is, I think, one of the one of the very interesting um, things which we didn't mention in the segment about the markets, but is important, is that just because the markets went up doesn't mean that the risk has gone down. So what you have with Trump, and I think everyone can admit this, is much higher downside tail risk. There's a bunch of like crazy apocalyptic things which have become more likely now. And you can see that in the prices of like second order derivatives, but where you can't see that is in the actual indices themselves. That's right. And so... And it should be said that derivatives traders love uncertainty. That's where they make their money. Exactly. So they're happy. They're happy because they're like, oh, Trump is crazy. (laughs) So we have no idea what's going to happen, but we're going to make a lot of money or lose a lot of money. But if you're you're Nassim Taleb right now or any number of other derivatives traders, what you're doing is you're buying a huge number of deep out-of-the-money options, um, most of which are going to expire worthless, but some of which are going to make you millions. Yes. So uh, let's talk about polling. Now, I just want to preface this by saying I hate polling. I hate it. I want us to, here's what I want us to do before we talk about what went wrong with everybody's polls and everybody's predictions on who would win the presidential election. I want us to just guesstimate, reckon on the number of man hours that have been spent in the last year and a half on polls. Like just how much time has been spent 
for people thinking about polls and guessing who's going to win. And it was always Hillary Clinton. Uh, what a fucking waste of time. And there was this thing called ADA. So, so um, Kathy, why don't you tell us what Ada was? Because this is amazing. Ada was the name of Clinton's secret algorithm. Is it is wait before? Do we think Ada was a weapon? uh, 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 A uh, a WMD. So I don't think Ada by itself was a WMD, a weapon of mass destruction, which requires it to be secret, destructive, and um and and important. Because I actually don't think it was. In, it was not important and destructive enough. I think polling as a whole is interesting, and I, I think the destruction, the destructiveness of polling as a whole is that again we're wasting so much time talking about it that we never we talk about who the like the college educated white Iowan woman be- between forty four and 40, 55 is thinking of voting for, but we don't talk to that person, ask them what they think. You yeah. know what I mean? We're not actually talking about issues. We're talking about who they might vote for. So and it's I, a bullshit conversation and it's a waste of time I, and it destroys actual conversations. I, I'm sorry I, I took us off a little bit off of Ada, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That. So the Ada apologies. Ada is like a is like one of those kinds of things that just wasn't discussed in the general public because it was secret and it was owned by the Clinton campaign. And it basically it was much more complicated than just a poll. It was it was based on lots of data and polling data in particular, but it was it was used to decide what, you know, where Clinton should go have a fundraiser, where Clinton should go talk to the crowds and which states were at risk, uh, which swing states were at risk. And where she should advertise. Where Every- she should advertise television versus what, you know, on the on the internet. I mean, it was her strategy. It was just like it was her whole her whole map and was based on this algorithm. An enormous amount of faith into it. Yeah, and I mean, and there's no. To be fair, yeah, there's no particular reason to believe that it was wrong. That like some omniscient uh, ad buyer and strategist, armed with the same amount of money, could have created a better outcome. Um, you know, doing something else. I think that ultimately the people voted and this is the way that democracies work is that you are given the choice between two choices and then you pick the one you want to vote for and then whichever one of those two choices you know has the most people i mean put the popular vote aside um they basically wins where where are we going with this felix where i'm going with this is that there's been a huge amount of talk about the democratic tactics and how Clinton can and should have done something different or how the Democratic Party can and should have done something different. And what I'm saying is, well, you know, ultimately, I think this was a a very obviously clear-cut choice in the election between two very, very different visions for America about what what it should be and what it could be. And I feel that that's all that you can really hope and expect a politician to be able to do is lay out their stool very clearly to everyone that matters. And they both did that. And then it was up to the people. I, I, to- I agree with you. In the, if you're what you're saying is that bad polling didn't lose Hillary Clinton this election. She lost this election. For lots of reasons. But it because wasn't the American polling. people didn't want to vote for her. That's why. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, and because uh, some people wanted to vote for Trump. Yeah. And, you know, but I agree that polling was not the reason that she lost. It was a huge distraction and they were wrong and they should have known better. I'm going to ar- argue because they're going to say that it was like this unknown unknown about you know, the, basically what was going on was there's actual bias in the polls and there was bias in the polls um, that because 
Trump, part of his campaign was don't trust pollsters, don't trust the media, don't talk to those people. So people either lied to them or said they were undecided or just refused to talk to them. I don't know if we know the extent to which that's true, but I I will say- I think it is true. And I think what the evidence that we have that it was true is that the Brexit polls were off by a lot. And these polls were off by about the same amount. I think we're, okay. So first off, we should talk about which polls were really truly wrong. I think, you know, the average by the end for- well, first off, let's say Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. She's going to win it by, I think, you know, more than Gore did, for instance. Once the Wait, dunk she, Hillary in Clinton is going to win the popular vote by a greater margin than any of the other um, presidential candidates who won the electoral vote and lost the election. Yeah. So more than Kennedy, more than Nixon, more than Gore. She's got the biggest margin. You know, it just so happens that all of those voters are in California yeah. and California was never in doubt. Exactly. Yeah. But so she's going, the polls were right in the in sense that they were predicting that she was going to win the popular vote. They predicted a, the national polls were right at least. And they, they, they predicted a bigger margin than what's probably going to, what it's going to end up being. But they were directionally correct. And again, all this, you know, people like, to give Nate Silver credit, for instance, people were saying there is uncertainty here. A normal polling error could swing this to, could give the majority to Trump. And people were also looking and saying, we have we have a lot of uncertainty right now about what's going on in swing states. And I think what we're learning is that polling on the state level is what was so truly bad. That's what we missed. We People did not see what was coming in Wisconsin, for instance. There was just no polling that suggested Trump's margin. And so it, it, it seems like maybe on a big national level, polling wasn't, you know, totally, you know, totally useless. I mean, it gave us a sense of where things were heading that wasn't absolutely wrong. But again, when you get to these smaller samples, and and frankly, these, you don't have as many good, you know, A plus grade pollsters going into these individual states, that's where we've run into problems. And that's also what fed issues in, in things like ADA. But you um, do have A plus pollsters in, say, Florida, and they were just as wrong as Wisconsin. It wasn't yeah. the pollsters' fault, guys. It was because right. people didn't trust pollsters and didn't want to talk to them. So, that's, so uh, Kathy, I'll, can I can I ask you a question? Yeah, because sure. there's this um, idea, I can't remember who, who came up with it, that the Republicans are really big on truthiness, that wonderful word which was invented by Stephen Colbert. Um, and then the Democrats, at least since 2012 and Nate Silver, um, have reacted by embracing factiness. And they really love fact checks and they really love data and they really love polls and they wind up wanting to quantify everything and decide whether it is right or wrong and that that factiness winds up missing something unbelievably important. Thank you for saying that. Yes. And here's the thing. And I'd say this to everyone who ever wants to hire me as a data scientist, which I say to them, what you want to predict is unpredictable with data science, because what they always want to predict is something that has never happened before. And Trump has never happened before. We do not have data on Trump. So we cannot predict it with any degree of likeliness. Now, if we had polls that said Trump is ahead by 15 points, then the data would be so strong that we would have known the truth, right? We didn't have that. It was close and it always has been close. And we should have just fessed up and said, let's just wait and see. And and the other thing, as you say, precisely because he's unprecedented, what you can't do, and this is a little bit like the the models which said that house prices would never go down nationwide before the crisis, which everyone used to price their mortgage-backed securities, that you can never price in or put an accurate probability on something which has never happened before. Exactly. And so 
you know, a nationwide houseful, everyone kind of maybe thought that perhaps there was some kind of probability you could put on that, but no one knew what it was because you can't look back through history and say, how frequent is this? Because the, the numerator is zero. The number of times that the United States has ever elected Donald Trump before this week was zero. And so you can't put a probability on that. And the, cl- and the closest thing we have to precedent is actually Brexit. And we know that it was badly off. So we should have suspected that. But like, to be fair, like, what did the Brexit people like the polls before Brexit had no precedent for this? So I I mean, I feel like now there's two data points. So like the future European elections will have some, you know, two data points to go with. So I want to push back on the idea again, that even the Brexit polls were that off. If you were watching them in again, in the lead up to that vote, they were close. They were wrong in the end. They had, I think, on the eve of the vote, they had uh, stay winning, but it wasn't a big gap. And so what I, I think it was I, enough I think, for it to be wrong. Yeah. Well, so here's what I, I think. I think my defensive polling and these kinds of predictions will be this. You're right. They can't give us these fine gradations. They can't give us the, the illusion of certainty is, is sort of an evil that need, we, we need to push back on. But I do think they can give you the, the broad sense of is this a likely event or is it an unlikely event? You know, you can kind of binary, like, is this a, is Trump's win a totally unlikely event or is it a toss up? And the poll should have been just telling us it's a toss up. We don't know. So can you explain to me in that case, Jordan, why you had people like the Huffington Post saying there was a 99% chance that going to win? So that's the thing. I think Nate Silver's poll perform in the end, because he was telling us in the end, even with the 70% number, he was still trying to tell people, this is, there is a chance this will happen. Do not write it off. Be prepared. He was saying that. Then you guys had like Sam Wang at Princeton who were like, there is a 0% chance of a Trump win. And that's a question of the model and how bad your model is. I'm saying there is possible to model that at least says there is uncertainty here and identifies uncertainty, right? And I think what we have learned is that the uncertainty is bigger than almost anyone and it, it kind of makes me happy because I'm like, maybe next election we can talk about issues rather than stupid poll numbers. <laughs> John's would be a fine thing. Okay, we... A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to lead off the numbers round with um, my number, which is three. And this is something which I got from a well-connected journalist. This is not a public number. But this is the raw, unskewed exit poll number um, for both Florida and Pennsylvania. If you looked at the exit polls in Florida and you looked at the exit polls in Pennsylvania and you just asked everyone in the exit polls, are you voting Trump or are you voting Clinton? Those exit polls showed a three-point lead for Clinton in both Florida and Pennsylvania. Now, when we publish all of the information that we're now seeing in exit polls about, you know, this percentage of college educated whites voted for Trump and blah, 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 that's all sort of an unskewed version where they take the raw data and then they adjust it for the fact that they know that this many people actually wound up voting for Trump. But if you don't do that adjustment, then it's not just the polls in the run up to the election, it's also the 
exit polls. It's people coming out of the of the polls and saying that they voted for Clinton when they voted for Trump or looking at the pollster and saying, I might have voted for Trump, but there's no way I'm going to tell you that. Or just walking away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, walking away, I think, is probably a huge part of that. Um, so, you know, I think that just tells us a lot. People have this idea that exit polls are more accurate than the polls in the run up to the election. There's no reason to believe that's true. No, none at all. It's at best they can give us like a sense of the demographic breakdown on things, but but even that I'm I, I have trouble trusting a lot of it. Um, mine's just not even remotely econ related, but whatever. We've been wonky enough this episode. Um, my number's eighty two, which is uh, Leonard Cohen. That's my number. Oh, uh, we're gonna both talk about Leonard Cohen. Though. Yeah. No, I mean you know if you were a. It's the first time that's ever happened. I think. Then yeah. we chose the same number. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I as, as my wife and I were mourning this election last night. We and also Leonard Cohen, we were sitting around listening to his version of Hallelujah, um, and one the, of his many versions of Hallelujah. Yeah, he well, has his, many versions. Yeah, you know, his the original one he recorded, which actually the production on it is kind, I think, is a little bit cheesy at points, but it's still such a great song. And how many guys actually wrote a real American standard since the 1960s? He's one of the few. Um, Famous and, blue raincoat always so, makes me cry. Oh my god, that's the only problem with his his music right now is it's so morose at points not all of it but a lot of it is so so morose that it's hard to listen to it um when trump is just one <laughs> like it, is, it is it's like adding insult to injury yeah i mean there's really one is. of his best songs is off of uh, like is literally about a guy standing in a, in a room about to slit his own wrist so i mean like it's but it's, if anybody is wondering if like they can take any more and they want to try watch mccabe and mrs miller this this weekend it's a classic anti-western film soundtrack by leonard cohen it's beautiful Okay, so Kathy, yeah. since you don't have a number, yes. you can I can I can talk about something else, you which can is talk about something else which is even more important. Which is something that the three of us independently wrote about this week, which was what to do in this era of the Trump presidency. And the answer is protect people. Um, and and protect uh, information. So I've been I've been giving money to um, the Guardian for myself, like to journalism and to um, Legal Defense Fund and the ACLU. Um, and I know both of you have been doing similar things. Yeah, I and I'm sure the listeners are doing that kind of thing. So please send us emails, tell us what you're doing, and we'll share um, your your strategies. My uh, my idea that I wrote about and did was to take the unexpected rise in the stock market after Trump's win and take all of the profit that you made thanks to that unexpected rise in the stock market and give that to, well, in my case, I split it between the ACLU and Planned Parenthood. Yeah, I I personally, um, I doubled my monthly donation to the Food Bank for New York City, partially because I um, just have always really cared about that cause, but also because uh, I, I fully expect food stamp, the food stamp budget to be cut significantly in mm. the coming years. And so I think making sure people can eat is actually going is to Is that become, a national organization? Uh, well, I mean, you can give, there are food banks all around the country. Yeah. I just happen to do, I think doing it in your own backyard is a kind of a, a good way to build your own community. And that's important. Uh, I, I really do believe that um, obviously charity is not a replacement for the social safety net, but when the social safety net is under attack, it is absolutely essential. And so channeling your sorrows and your rage into charity right now is a way to maybe make the, you know, give yourself a sense of control, uh, you know, in this world and just do a little bit of good. It's so important. So please tell us what you're doing right now, uh, to try and make the world a little bit of a better place. And we'll, we're going to sum it up and put it up on the show page in some way or another. You guys came through for doctors without borders last time when we talked about something like that. Uh, we'd love to, you know, see a similar response. Um, and 
Also, if you if you have any money left over from that, we still have a handful of tickets left for the craft beer special on December the 15th. Because we all need a drink. Union Hall in Brooklyn. <laughs> so come and drink beer with us. Again, the URL is in the show notes. But it's going to be a boozy evening with sure us. Is. Yeah. So um, on which note, I think we can... Wrap up this Trumpish edition of Slate Money. Apologies for breaking the no Trump rule, but I feel we had no choice. Um, thank you for listening. Send us your emails. It is as ever slate money at slate.com. Many thanks to Zach Dynastine, who produced this week, as well as executive producers Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. Um, the entire panoply roster can be found at iTunes.com slash panoply and we will talk to you next week on slate money and if no leaves were on the tree and no water in the sea and the break of day had nothing to reveal that's how broken i would be what my life would seem me if I didn't have your love to make it real When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.